Erica Madden began her professional journey in communications as a student at Indiana University in Bloomington. Having grown up in the sports-rich state of Pennsylvania, Erica was thrilled to have found herself behind the scenes of one of college basketball's most storied programs. The confluence of dynamic personalities, amazing stories, and all that the medium of sports gives to our society, well, that got Erica hooked. After graduation, her professional stops in the industry of sports information took her to two NCAA Division I institutions in North Carolina, Davidson and Elon. The smaller institutions gave a perspective of the industry of sports communications to her, especially given her time at that large public university. Erica joins us today to not only give us her unique perspective on athletic communications as an industry and the strategic role and importance of sports information directors, She's also here to inspire us to be storytellers. Her rich background working with college athletics colleagues, nonprofits, donors, startup companies, and a variety of sectors of American business, it makes her the perfect person to learn from as we continue to plow through the challenges of COVID and all of the other stresses in society. So Erica, as you and I were discussing the possibility of this podcast, we gently laughed at the thought that we can entitle this if I knew then what I know now, well, those chuckles really kind of gave way to some serious consideration. There is value in discussing the past, the present and future, along with the attitudes, knowledge, and again, perspectives. So let's start at the end. What do you know now as it pertains to communications, sports, and relationships and telling stories? Oh, man. How much time do we have today? I forget. Did you say three hours? I think that's, that's what right. It's a nine-part series. Um, right. Um, well, first, thanks for having me today. I'm I'm very grateful to be here. Um, and man, I have learned so much during my career. And uh, one of the first things I would say is probably that to do a good job in the communication space, you actually have to be a really good listener. And I think that's probably a missed aspect. Um, certainly, something I didn't pay attention, pay enough attention to when I was younger is that one, you become a better storyteller when you're a good listener, but also you just learn a lot of different skills related to empathy and compassion and other things like that, that I hope we get a chance to to touch on. But I think being a good listener is such a key part of being a good communicator. They go hand in hand. I think the other thing, you know, that is so different from how I first started my career is when I was starting the communication I focus so heavily on the external part of communications, the, you know, the, the more marketing aspects, the messaging aspects. And now in my communications career, I focus a lot more on the internal aspects of communications. I'm looking more at how people communicate with each other inside of an organization, because a lot of times that's the breakdown. That's where the breakdown starts, right? So Many times, external communication, external messaging, external stories will take care of themselves if people are doing a good job in the internal spaces. But internal is a lot harder than external. If you just consider the fact that the people you work with on a day-to-day basis, it's a lot harder to give them your opinion, right? Because (laughs) it's riskier. If I just put word out there to the general broad audience, sometimes I don't get feedback and at least I don't know whether they, at least I don't know they didn't like it. And even if they do give me feedback, it's a lot of unknown people, right? I don't necessarily care that deeply about their opinion. So I think it feels so much scarier to have those conversations with people you have real relationships with. There's a lot of risk in that. But working on those spaces, I think people often, you know, have, have brought me in to help them in their organizations thinking that they have an external marketing problem. And 
sometimes they do, right? A lot of times they could use some help with their storytelling messaging, but almost always as I start to peel back the layers of the onion, it comes down to like breakdowns in communication across leadership, um, leaders that there's always elephants in the room, right? That nobody wants to, nobody wants to talk about. So I think thinking about communications as both an internal priority as much as it is an external priority is something that I've definitely learned that's different from when I started my career in, in sports information. In regard to storytelling, I would say that one of the biggest things I learned is that we all are basically telling ourselves a story every moment of every day. Right. So in our own heads, whether we're buying a product, we're saying, you know, I'm a person who does these things and believes these things. So I buy this kind of product. I shop at this kind of store. You know, we're always there's always a story behind that. As a communications person, you have to figure out either how to help your audience find themselves in your story. Um, they have to find a place there or you have to figure out how to weave your story into the story that's already in their head. And so I don't I don't think I recognize all of those things early on in my career was that our life is basically one big story. I mean, even if you just think about how you interpreted what your wife said or didn't say this morning, those are your, you create a story around that, right? So the stories that we're telling in our heads are way more powerful than the ones any, any marketer or somebody could, could share with us. Before we blow all the way back to the beginning, the intro that I offer talked about Davidson and Elon, but I did that for brevity after you left Indiana. You, you've had a couple of more stops since or after yeah. yeah um i've made quite a few stops um over the course of my career i went to davidson first right out of right out of college which was a bit of a shock to my system and i we can come back and talk about that a little bit but i i ended up marrying a college basketball coach and anybody who works in the sports world understands how coaching is climbing a ladder um and so you're transitioning through different uh positions not always making a whole lot more money along the way as you try to like gain that experience. So because of that, whether I was actually working in a role at the schools that we were in or just played, again, a lot of times I ended up helping these athletic departments because we were everywhere from high major. We were in at Clemson at one point in time. And I also did some work at Furman while we were in that space. We, he worked at Emory. And so, you know, that was another level of basketball and level of sports information, level of support they had in sports information, right? So there was always opportunities for me to play a role in these different, these different schools. But also along the way, I wasn't always working in sports, because sometimes I had to find, you know, extend my communications background into other spaces, because we moved a lot. So there was trying in many situations, but also really good good learning experience as well. All right. So let's now go all the way back. <laughs> so you were a student at Indiana and you found yourself one day in the communications department. I went to college specifically because I wanted to be on ESPN. That was what I thought I was going to do with my life. I love sports. I There are baby pictures of me in black and gold. Um, I am a Steelers fan, Pirates fan, Penguins fan. But oddly enough, what led me to Indiana was my love of Notre Dame. I I have been a Notre Dame fan, my Notre Dame football fan my entire life. My grandmother's a Notre Dame fan. Everybody else in my family is a Penn State fan. And so I, uh, my dad knew that I would be terribly disappointed if we didn't go out and visit Notre Dame. But he said, if we're going all the way to Notre Dame, can we please look at some other places? And uh, Indiana happened to have um, a good sports communications program. And Basically, it was big basketball or big football. You know, that's what I was trading by choosing a different school. But I really, I walked on campus in Bloomington and I, I just fell in love. Um, 
you know, I traded big football for big basketball for sure. I honestly, because I had gone to school thinking I was going to be a member of the media, I'd never even heard of media relations. I, I didn't know what sports information, I didn't know what that was. And it was um, late in my sophomore year that a, a friend told me about the media relations department and what they did. And so I ended up starting to work there my junior year. In fact, uh, my first experience in the sports information office was the press conference when Coach Knight got fired. So I, I was at Indiana at a really, really interesting time period. And the way, watching the way fans reacted, watch the way media reacted. Also working at a school like that, the media was always searching for stories and not the good stories, right? And so I actually think that was the space that transitioned me from wanting to actually be a member of the media to being a member of the media relations department that helped student athletes speak to media better, um, to be able to pitch, you know, more positive stories as opposed to the, you know, being a person who's searching around for the the junk um, that, you know, ends up on the, the front page news, uh, what my athletes should or shouldn't have been doing <laughs> on a Friday or Saturday night. And so um, all of those things were really, really interesting experiences. And I will say the other thing that happened to me there that it turned out to be a, a huge advantage for me was that um, my boss's wife had her, they had, she had their first child during, um, I guess it was, it was going to happen during basketball season in my senior year. So I ended up traveling with the basketball team on my own as their media relations um, representative my whole senior year. We went to the final four. We ended up in the championship game against Maryland. Mike Davis was our coach then, which was also a really interesting thing in Indiana basketball for, you know, black basketball coach. There's a lot of storylines, right? A lot of really interesting things that happen. And, most of those things are what led me to my career in sports information. And I just had a lot of experiences at a young age, for sure, in college. When you and I had talked originally about this podcast, you had mentioned the idea that at a young age, you thought that it was not an asset. It was not the right thing to move around a whole lot. But as we look back at your sports information career, you did move around a whole lot. So if you take the young experiences at Indiana, and if you take the idea that you've moved geographically, that you've moved inside different sports information environments, what have you taken away from all that? First, take what's offered to you is the first thing that I would say, because there were a lot of, it, it wasn't always easy for to do the things even at Indiana that I did as a, as a technically a student worker. I still had a full study of classes. I traveled with the soccer team, then I went right into traveling with the basketball team. I mean, school was, I don't, I don't want to say that you should consider school and you know, an afterthought. But in this case, I was getting so much hands-on experience. And, you know, if I would have thought class and those kind of things were like of utmost importance, and again, not, again, I'm not trying to say that it's not, but I'm saying that those experiences were what lofted me into a new place. And so I would say, you know, the first thing is when there are opportunities, or if you want the opportunity, ask for it and, and do those little things. I mean, one of the reasons that I learned at Indiana how to, you know, do graphic design was I just asked the people who are working there, how do I use Photoshop? How do I, how do I do this? How do I create my own things, you know, so I could start to build my own graphics and create my own player of the year flyers. And then the moving around, one of the biggest advantages for me has been that I've, I've had to adapt in a lot of um, new office environments to new people, um, to their ideas and their ways of doing business quickly. You know, I've had to understand it and be able to adapt the way I work. I've also taken a lot of things from 
outside the sports information world. Like I had left sports information for a period of time, at least in a full-time capacity because of moving around. And when I got hired at Elon to lead their athletic communications department, I had a lot of other things to lean on, not just things from the sports world and things from athletic communications or athletic departments. I brought back things from the other environments that I had worked in that could be applied. And so I think I really, really learned a lot and became a bit more of a generalist than even a communications specialist because of the different things that I learned from being in different environments, working in slightly different places that all required strong communication, but weren't like necessarily directly you know, writing press releases or, or that kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah. Last question about your past before we really hit this moment of where we are in our society today, you had alluded to the idea of the stark difference between the public institution that is Indiana and the private schools on the outer fringe of the Charlotte marketplace in Davidson. What were the differences and how can you convey some of your experiences to those folks that are listening today that they may be taking inventory and stock about what it is they're looking for or how they're interacting within communications? I'll be honest, about three months, maybe two months into my time at Davidson, I thought, I got to get out of here. I don't know if I can I can do this. One, you know, it's my first job out of college, but I had just gone from went to the final four with the soccer team two years in a row. I sat on press row in the championship game with, you know, doing the book for my basketball team. I'd had my basketball team come back to, I, I can't resist not plugging this in there that we beat Duke that year in the sweet 16 and in a comeback that we never should have made. Let's wow, Erica, it looks um, like we're out of time. I'm sorry <laughs> that we got to cut this short. I was hoping you'd give me a chance to, to bring that up. Um, but there were so, there was so much, that happens on that big in that big environment that like coming to um, moving to the south in a small town with a school of you know 1500 students was just I I didn't know I I didn't know what to do with that you know it was just so extremely extremely different Um, and at the time I hadn't been hired to take basketball at at Davidson I was really brought on with my soccer background but soccer season I, I got here in like late October, early November, so soccer season was about over. And I think I was going to be covering wrestling. No offense to those who really like to be wrestling SIDs, but that, I didn't know anything about wrestling. I'd never seen a wrestling match in my life. And, you know, I was really missing the basketball experience. So luckily I had a great boss. He said, why don't you, when I was expressing some of my, I'm not sure, I'm really not sure what I'm, what I'm doing here right now. He said, why don't you do some basketball and, and basketball was just right before uh, Steph Curry came and they were winning SOCON championships on a, a regular basis. And they had some great, great athletes who did what they do well and they were smart athletes. So that that's what I would say I really liked about working at the smaller mid-major institutions is I was working with student athletes who came to be students before necessarily athletes. And so they were well-spoken. They were more a bit more thoughtful and they weren't all thinking they were going to go play professional sports. Like they had other goals in their, in their lives. And so I really appreciated that aspect of working with those athletes, like telling some of their stories that were both athletic and academic. So that was the advantage that I saw I had to be a lot more focused on trying to sell stories. It's when I first learned the true value of relationships in the the world that we work in, because if you wanted to get something printed in the Charlotte market, it wasn't the easiest thing to do from 
little Davidson, especially when it wasn't a basketball story. You know, any other stories were rarely making it into the into the news. And at that point, you weren't quite your own media yet. Uh, all of you know, Twitter and um, you know, Facebook and all these social media uh, social media didn't ex- really exist yet. It was just starting to touch on those scenes. So you really did need to rely on other people talking about you. So yeah, it was, a, it was a big shock to my system, but I came to, I really, really loved working with Davidson basketball, had a lot of great experiences doing that. So at this point, it's my hope that our listeners have a confidence and a trust in who you are and where you've been as a sports information professional. In 2015, you did launch your own company, and I've often heard you talk about courageous communication. What do you mean by that term? How does it apply to those who are part of the COSIDA membership? How does it factor into all of the challenging times we're going through now? You know, one of my all-time favorite authors is and speakers is Brene Brown. Um, she's a shame researcher, so I'm sure that entices most people to go immediately look her up because that's what everybody wants to do um, is read about shame. But she, her first ever TED Talk was a TED Talk about vulnerability, and it kind of latched me on to her. And she recently wrote a book applying her her findings to more of the the working world. Um, And in the book, she says, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. And I think that sums up sort of what I mean about courageous communication. It's hard to say the hard thing and to speak your truth. But by doing so, you're being very clear with people. And that is the kind way to treat them. It's the courageous way to be. And it enables you to move, you both usually to move forward in some capacity, even if it's that you agree to disagree in the space that you're in. But if you aren't clear, you you can't be productive for one thing um, without being able to say exactly what you want done, especially as you, you know, if you're sports information that's leading your department, if you can't clearly articulate, and as Brene likes to say, she says, paint done. If you can't tell people what the end result needs to look like, they're probably not going to do it the way that you want to. It's less that you need to tell them how to do it. It's more that you need to be clear about what you want an end result to be. Um, and that is a kind way to lead your team so that you're all on the same same page. And I think that you can promote that within your departments, both your smaller departments and your entire athletic department, is, is teaching people how to have that kind of courageous com- communication across the board, not because – you want to say mean things to other people, but you're willing to say hard things so that you can collectively be better as humans and be better as professionals. Yeah, that comment brings up a a comment coming back, I guess. It's not really a a question. When we look back at 2020 and recognize it was a time for us to extend our connections and our networking, uh, it was a year in which we worked together more on campus collaboratively, hoping that maybe we spoke to each other a little bit more courageously. Uh, This year is providing a lesson for us if we practice the things that, if we're better at communication, regardless of age and rank. Yeah, I mean, I think this year we've had to really get better at communication because we don't even have the advantage of being in front, sitting with the other people. And there's there's so much of communication that's done through body language um, and, expressions that sometimes we can't see even if we are on a video video call 
again, we were talking before we even started this, how easy it is to be distracted when you're on a video call in comparison to when you're like sitting across the table from somebody or engaging with them. And so I think, you know, words have become even more powerful. The ways that the, the things that we say and the clarity behind them have had to be more powerful. And then you consider the people that you have to communicate with that you have to be inside with all day, every day, which you probably weren't doing either, right? So there's the communication that we now have to apply that's different with the professionals that now we are based from. And then there's the communication that we have to do inside our homes with the people we aren't used to being around 24 hours a day. And so I think there's both of those things that have um, we've all had to learn to be a little better at. Um, and recognize how we all communicate differently. And just because you communicate one way and I communicate another way, it doesn't mean either of us are wrong. We just do it differently. And so being able to learn how the other person likes to be communicated, and I'll go back to like leaders of communications departments. If you have 10 staff members, they might all like to be communicated in a slight, with in a slightly different way. And so learning their styles and learning what works for them that motivates them and helps them understand and get jobs done is, is really important for you as a leader. Either literally or metaphorically, depending on which time of COVID or pre-COVID we're talking about, the halls of college athletic departments, they are filled with strong personalities. Communications professional has got to read and react, and it's really tough to do that via video. So that leads me to ask a term that you have used with me, being ridiculously present. How do you be ridiculously present in a video world when it comes to communication, and what are the benefits if you are ridiculously present. So I'll give a little backstory of ridiculously present. I feel like it's something that I, I come back to this term a lot. And I feel like when I'm able to be ridiculously present with people, I'm doing life well. It's when I feel like I can't be ridiculously present with people when I'm multitasking too often or trying to, you know, send this one email while somebody else is saying something to me on a video call, or even, again, if you're in the same space and your staff member comes into your office, right, and you're still trying to do something, that when I'm, when I'm not able to turn and look at the person and be present in what they're saying and not let my mind wander away, but my mind wanders, I know I have too many things going on, and I have, I have to do a, a check with myself. And this phrase came from one of my um, – favorite nonprofits that's actually local to where you are, the Little Pink Houses of Hope. They do retreats for uh, families who are going through breast cancer. And I used to do quite a bit of volunteer work with them. And I led these retreats and led volunteers. And I remember the first one I went on and I'm, if, if you haven't been able to tell the audience out there that I'm a rather type A individual, I like to have control over things. And I like to know what's going on in when I go on trips, when I do things. And so this was early on in this nonprofit's life. And they, again, lead these week-long retreats. And, and they really didn't give me a lot of information about what I was going to be doing when I went on the retreat. And that made me very uncomfortable. And I remember, you know, kind of just having to hand it over and knowing that I wanted to go make this part of my world. And so I went on this retreat and the founder was leading it, leading the retreat that time. And and she said, you know, there's going to be a lot of things you all have to do this week. There's meals that we have to make and, you know, people that we're taking care of. But she's like, the main, the real main goal of this entire retreat is for you to be ridiculously present and love on these people, these strangers. It's to be completely present to their world. It's not to be distracted by your phones or, you know, your work. It's to put all of that aside so that you can just be ridiculously present with them. And, you know, since then, I've probably led 
seven or eight of these retreats. And people always, all the families that come on these retreats say, you know, there's some kind of magic that happens here. What is the secret sauce? What what goes on here? And to me, it's always that people are ridiculously present. We're so not used to that in our worlds anymore because there's always a distraction around us. You know, we always have that next, you know, tweet that we can make or the Instagram post that we're setting up or this phone call to return or even just news to scroll, right? And so rarely are people ridiculously present with you. And I think it's shocking almost when people are. And that you, it almost, you know, you catch your breath a little bit because people are paying such close attention to you and you're not, you're not used to that. It helps you ask better questions when you're ridiculously present. And quite honestly, it makes you much more empathetic of a human because you're actually trying to listen well enough to be able to walk in their shoes a little bit. And that's kind of the only way, in my opinion, to be a really good storyteller is if you is if you're really listening closely and being present with people to understand where they're coming from and what they're going through in the world right now. Yeah, the idea that even though it is a bit uncomfortable because it is so different to be intensely focused like that, the idea that a byproduct of being that focused is finding stories that you may have never seen before because of all the other clutter that you've decided to have sort of invade your thinking in your own space. I think that's I think that's really true. And it's actually something to consider about, it kind of leads me to another comment about communications is when are you being a communications professional that's just contributing to the clutter? Like, how do you know when you need to just be quiet? Because what you have to say is just, you know, another piece of content marketing that there are a zillion other pieces out there. And, and when do you, spend your time finding the uniqueness, finding the right story, determining what your audience is looking for from you. I mean, so often we just make a plan without actually talking and listening to our audience and finding out what they care about from us. What is it that they're searching for from us? And what is it that they wish that we provide? If we are constantly involved in the clutter, we're probably also contributing to the clutter, right? So how do we take a step back and figure out how to not contribute, how to not just be another contributor to the clutter. That's a, uh, that's a brilliant nugget. Uh, it really is. And it sets us up for our last question, which I hope to be just as brilliant as what you just conveyed. So let's, let's a lot the of theme is <laughs> right, <laughs> setting a really high bar. So if we yep. go back to the idea that the theme of this is if I knew then what I know now. So if you could go back and tell the younger you one thing, what would it be from a communication standpoint? What advice would the older Erica give to the younger Erica, especially when it comes to advocating and providing that daily value? You know, it's really funny when we uh, first started batting around this title, I remembered that I actually written a blog called Dear Younger Me. And so um, when when we were talking about it after we had gotten off the phone the, the first time, I thought, I'm going to go look that up and see um, what all I actually told myself. There's probably a lot of things I need to remind myself. And there were, you know, a whole variety of things that I'm going to print this out and now hang it on my wall. A couple of them stand out. And one of them was the idea of being present, which we've already talked about. I wrote, be present ridiculously so wherever you are with whomever you're with. Believe you are in the right place and share the gift of your presence. And so I think that still reigns true. One of the other things was learn to articulate your feelings, emotions, and heart's desires to those you care about, even when your thoughts are at odds with those of the other person. Authentic and vulnerable conversation 
ultimately leads to deep and meaningful partnership. And again, I, I think that is so, so, so incredibly critical of your folks who are working in sports information right now. You work really closely with people for long hours, long days, you know, nights and weekends. You know, these are these people are people you have to understand what their world is like and hopefully they have respect for what your world is like it's hard to hide your life in sports information because you don't work nine to five right your your life you know has to you try to have you have to figure out how to balance life with all of the things that happen when you're working in the sports world and you you know you get holidays kind of you know are taken away because we all like watching sports and and all of those things and so figuring out how to how to place balance and you know be able to have those those tough conversations both um, in your personal and professional world, um, and sharing your true feelings so you don't become kind of bitter <laughs> and regretful about things, I think is really important. One of the other things I wrote was study grammar, learn to write, words are powerful, powerful tools. And man, if I could encourage young people today to learn to write and use your words and not just emojis and you know, type out the word you once in a while instead of using the letter, you know, learn, learn to write. I think it's, I think it's really important. I never met a red pen I, I didn't like and all the people who have ever worked for me before will tell you that is true. And I've had several of them come back to me and say, thank you for doing that because it made me better. They hated it at the time, but thank you for doing that. And so that was another one. And my final one, which I have re-articulated many times on my current business website and in other places is Never miss the opportunity to write a handwritten thank you note. I think we we do not tell people thank you in a heartfelt way enough. So I think that you never know where a thank you for a meeting, a thank you for a lunch, a thank you for um, a listening ear. Like it doesn't have to be just a gift. It, all those things are gifts, right? They might not be physical gifts, but they are gifts. And so make sure that you tell people when you appreciate what they've done for you or how they showed up for you, I think that's really, really important. 